Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And Louis Armstrong trumpets us into another African Studies podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Jim Lance, and I'm your host. Today, I am very pleased to have as my guest Olufemi Taiwo, Professor of Africana Studies at the Africana Studies and Research Center in Cor- at Cornell University. We'll be discussing his book, Africa Must Be Modern, a Manifesto, published in the United States by Indiana University Press. There are books that you should read books that you want to read, and then there are what I call prefects EN books that you simply must read. These books, these are books that enlighten, entertain, energize. These are books that compel us to reassess our assumptions about the world and our place in it. Africa Must Be Modern, a manifesto, is definitely a prefects EN book. In his book, Professor Taiwo explores Africa's hostility towards modernity and how that hostility has impeded the continent's economic development and social and political transformation. But the book is also a highly personal depiction of one African scholar's journey, both intellectually and geographically, towards an understanding and appreciation of the existential and philosophical imperatives implicit in the concept of modernity. Femi, welcome to the show. I really appreciate your uh, being a guest on it. Uh, thank you very much, Jim. I'm glad to be here, and thank you for your, your very kind words on the book. I really appreciate them. Well, well they're heartfelt and sincere. Thank you. Uh, and I'm a publisher, and believe me, I've had a number of books that are definitely not pre sexy end books. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> before we begin to talk about the, books, uh, the book itself, can you give our listeners an outline of your journey and how you came to write this book? And also, I was um, really intrigued by one of the key, key um, material, material aspects of the book is that you decided to challenge the normal assembly line of knowledge production in which books on African studies migrate from European or American publishers to the continent. Instead, you made sure the book was first published in Nigeria, and I'd be interested in learning how you made that decision and how the book has been received. <clears throat> Uh, thank you. Uh, let me talk about, you know, uh, I did say in the book that its trajectory goes all the way back to 1986 or thereabouts. Um, and that was when I was finishing my doctoral studies uh, in Canada. But before then, um, part of actually what led me to what I did in graduate school was that I figured as a young leftist in Nigeria that our senior comrades then, as we call them, uh, did not write the kinds of books that we thought we should be reading. Uh, so in my intellectual work, in my professional academic career, uh, I have been trying to fill some of those blank spaces. And that was one thing that I decided upon uh, in grad school. But the road that led to Africa Must Be Modern uh, was just slightly off that road, and it was because 
I saw that all the institutions that we have uh, in Africa now that dominate our public lives are institutions that were products of colonialism. And having lived in Canada and been a student of Euro-American, Western, call it what you will, history, philosophy, culture, economics, political economy, uh, whatever it is that we don't like about the systems in these places, they do deliver for their people. And there is a certain uh, account of what it is to be human and what human beings owe one another and lines that the state is not supposed to cross, uh, at least theoretically speaking. And we have exactly the same principles in the institutions that dominate public life in Africa. My question then was, I had never known those institutions to work for Africans. And I mean ordinary Africans. I'm not talking of money bags. I'm not talking of ruling classes and all that. Uh, in the same way. So I wanted to ask, why is it that these institutions, when they get to Africa, unravel? Why is it that they don't? So the work that I did, which was published before this book, was the theoretical answer to that. It's the book on modernity and colonialism. And it was my discovery that, contrary to what we had always been told, that colonialism was the instrument through which modernity was introduced to Africa, I found in my research that it was the exact opposite in some parts of West Africa, specifically English-speaking West Africa, that there, modernity predated colonialism, and colonialism was actually the reason why modernity never took roots. And this modernity I traced to the Christian missionaries, a certain cohort of them in the early part of the 19th century. So after that book was published, so I was concerned to write something on what it would be like if Africa were indeed modern. And I wanted to write it at a popular level that educated people can take it without, you know, having studied philosophy or any of the highfalutin theories and all that, read it, get a gist of it, and know exactly, you know, what I'm talking about. So that was a challenge for me to... Uh, explore my journalistic roots and be able to write some less turgid prose <laughs> uh, <laughs> the idea uh, while making a very strong argument. And the book developed over four years. I actually wrote it over four years. I didn't want it to be an academic book. I didn't want it to be another item on my CV. Um, the book has no footnotes. I wanted to be absolutely responsible for every damn word that shows up in the book uh, so that if anything goes wrong, people can blame it on me. <laughs> uh, and the reason why I called it a manifesto was that mm -hmm. I decided that if I were to write it the way that we normally write, presenting both sides and trying to find arguments for why one side is better than the other, it would detract from what I wanted to do. And since... Have you ever seen a manifesto where the party that has the manifesto talks something good about the other party? No. <laughs> so calling the manifesto meant that I could be as irresponsible as I wanted to be. Uh, but I did hope, and I said in the introduction to the book, that if there is a silent modernist party in Africa, I hope many members of that 
faceless, nameless members of that party can find themselves in this manifesto. So that was why, you know, it was crafted. Um, mixture of analysis, argumentation, anecdotes, personal sides. I hope a few jokes, um, and I hope they do work, you know, uh, when people get them. And from the beginning, I wanted to publish it in Africa because that's where the engagement should be. And I didn't want to publish it here and then worry about how people are to get foreign exchange to buy it in African countries, you know, um, uh, what the distribution network is like and all that. So fortunately, there's a Nigerian publisher who I hadn't known uh, in person by then, but I've seen some of the works he published. And I said that until he said no to the manuscript, he was the one I want to publish the book. And fortunately, he loved the book from the get-go, and he published it. So we were just worried about, you know, uh, how do we get it to the rest of the world because it doesn't have a distribution network here. But I really didn't want the book to become a part of this overseas discussion of people talking back to Africa. So I wanted to put it in Africa and challenge people and have conversations and, uh, you know, get some punches in the face um, for the things that I had to say, you know, and all that. And I, yes, I've gotten some of those. But um, so that was how the book got published in Africa. And then uh, 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 Dee Mortensen, the editor at Indiana, who had published my other book, uh, was sent a copy by my Nigerian publisher. They worked together before. And she loved the book. And as they say, the rest is history. And I'm so thankful um, that she uh, optioned uh, the book for this market. And that explains the preface to the American edition. Uh, and I hope that readers of the book who read the preface to the American edition can actually see the relevance of the book after last night's debacle. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, that we we'll probably talk about that towards the end, but yeah, I really want to give a shout out to Dee Mortensen. Uh, I agree with you. She uh, she's a great editor, and um, she deserves uh, a nice pat on the back for bringing this book to our side of the of the uh, ocean. And I uh, I really really uh, was impressed uh, by your decision to go to Africa first. It's such a reversal from the normal pattern, and it shows that you're not only talking the talk but walking the walk. Um, and yes. Uh, I have found many parts of your book that made me laugh out loud. Yeah, thank you. But I also have to admit there are many parts that made me go, <laughs> Well, as you say, you've you got to take the cold with the, with the hot. <laughs> so let's get, let's get to the book itself. What, what, let's just start off. What, do you, what, are, what are your main arguments that you make in the book? Um, based on the former work that I said, I identify what I take to be some of the quintessential tenets of modernity. Um, and what I did was to take each tenet and ask, were Africa to take this tenet seriously, what would Africa dominated by this tenet look like? Um, I have actually simplified modernity in ways that annoy people uh, into three main things. Uh, one, what I call the principle of subjectivity, which goes back to Hegel, you know, um, but the sociological concomitant of that is individualism. 
then what I call the centrality of reason. And that's the idea that for anything to be accepted, it has to pass muster by reason. And if that doesn't happen, it should be dropped. So no revelation, no authority, uh, no tradition. Uh, you can appeal to all those things, but they all must go through the crucible of reason. Uh, and the third is the idea of progress. Um, the way that I always love to describe that is uh, a near lunatic obsession with the new. Uh, so we see it in this society, new and improved. And um, so it's almost always as if nothing ever is. It is always about to become something else, but something better. So this is the age in which we worship change just for the sake of it, um, without thinking of whether we should even have it, you know, uh, and in what measure. So when you divide all those, you know, further, that's how I got the six chapters of the book. Um, in the chapter on why Africa should get on the, you know, uh, modernity express, um, my argument is that you look at all the other countries that used to share what I call uh, with us, the misery corner of the globe, uh, in Asia, in South America, they have all left us behind. What is the secret to their success? No, it's not some dubious Asian culture. Uh, no, South Korea deliberately said, we want to catch up with Europe and America. They set a time frame and they beat their deadline by two years. And today, South Korea is giving aid to African countries and our leaders are not embarrassed, you know, that they are doing that. Uh, you look at Brazil, um, by the time military rule was overthrown and uh, uh, Enrique Cardoso was finance minister, uh, I'm sure you recall uh, what inflation was like in Brazil, which, you know, made them to change their currency, to remove all the zeros and so on and so forth. They set on building a modern economy now Brazil is a power that the U.S. no longer ignores. Um, you look at China, it's not an accident that after the Gang of Four were eliminated from the party, they called the program the Four Modernizations. In 40 years, you know, uh, it's very hard now for people who are under 30 to even think of China of one billion people wearing that gray smock and everybody wearing the, you know, Mount Beret and, you know, mm -hmm. shouting all kinds of slogans, you know. Um, I don't think President Xi Jinping right now remembers what that frock looks like. <laughs> they are all now yeah. serving role, you know, um, and doing their best to have a financial center, uh, building capitalism in the name of whatever it is. So my point is, Africa could do worse than be like the West, where that is concerned. Um, and then, the paragraph, the chapter on individualism, um, for me, uh, all the stuff about collectivism and stuff like that, uh, they hold people back. And I'm not the first to say that. Nkrumah had condemned it. Senghor had condemned it. But because our scholars don't read our own intellectuals, uh, so we are always concerned with trying to justify to people here most especially the anthropologistic nonsense that continues to dominate African studies about how Africans are so different from the rest of the world. Uh, so once you take that very seriously, uh, then people say to me, but then 
That will make us Western. So I said, no, it doesn't make you Western because modernity requires you to be the author of your own self. Now, you may make that self over, as the Japanese often do, in the Western image, but you'll be the author of it and you will own it. As long as nobody else is giving you uh, a template uh, with which you model your life, then whatever mistakes you make, you will own the mistakes also. So there are all kinds of ways in which taking that very seriously will free up energies of people, will, um, will lead to more productivity in all areas, not just material, but also intellectual. Um, um, talk about a million flowers blooming, you know. Uh, and then uh, I wrote about the knowledge society and its rewards. And as I said in the book, there's no knowledge society in Africa today, outside possibly South Africa. But for the rest of the continent, the universities are manpower training institutions. So that's the reason when Ebola broke, all the research institutes in Africa had not been working on it. Because all of them are busy trying to train civil servants, trying to train those who are going to join McKinsey, trying to train those who are going to work for, you know, Standard Bank. Um, so when you graduate history students, when you graduate biology, microbiology, they end up working in banks. Agricultural graduates, they end up working in banks. So how are you then going to deal with whatever pest is going to destroy your cassava? You expect American scientists through the International Institute for Tropical Agriculture to carry the burden on your behalf. So the idea that universities should have as their business the production of knowledge, regardless of what that knowledge will be used for, is not something that has any kind of hospitable reception in Africa, and we are paying for it. <laughs> uh, but just so people will not think that I'm just conversing useless knowledge. So the chapter on counting is one way to show how something that you do without a particular purpose will become handy when a purpose shows up. Let me just interject because you're, you're, you're really doing a great job of outlining the book. But for our listeners, let me just read the, the six chapters yes. so, so they get a sense of where you're coming from. Um, you, 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 you um, talked about why Africa must get aboard the Modernity Express. That's the first chapter. Then you talk about individualism in Chapter yeah. 2, the Knowledge Society in Chapter 3, uh, the, the need to count, measure, and count again, uh, quantification and data collection is uh, the theme of Chapter 4. Chapter 5, which to me is one of the key chapters of the book, is process, not outcome. Yeah. Uh, and then again, and then you conclude with... Uh, a really moving and poignant chapter about how to instill the culture of hope. Let me just start. Let me just hold you, hold you, hold your rein you in a bit yes. here, and just just kind of get some questions. Uh, when I, as I started reading this manifesto yes. and the, the, the tenets uh, and aspirations you outline, I just was wondering why why would any uh, I hate to use the word reasonable, but I will reasonable person find the uh, something to oppose here. You're 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 arguing for a full expression of the of the self, the individual. You're expressing for uh, 
developing knowledge that will be not only that will have intrinsic value and use to your society and you're you're arguing on behalf of of a system that's fair and equitable if not necessarily uh one that that has a system of procedures that uh, that favor the little guy as well as the big guy and then you're you're articulating how this can lead to a hopeful resolution to many uh not only of Africa's dilemmas, but the world. So, what, what, what do you do? You see, is why are people opposing this, and why are Africans opposing this? And I think um, I was, I thought I saw a possible answer in um, your chapters on this, this emphasis on the African personality and communalism as sort, of, sort of stumbling blocks that may have really little, if any. Uh, realistic foundation. Am I, am I misreading no, it? No, you, you put your finger on it. Um, but the, the beginning of that is that once colonialism put paid to modernity, anti-colonialism then became synonymous with anti-modernity. And modernity became synonymous with Western colonialism. So, people don't read the philosophy uh, independently they think they already know what it is, and it is exactly what our nationalist foreparents reacted against in the independence struggle. But all the Africans who had embraced modernity and who gave fight to the British colonialists or the French colonialists or even the Portuguese colonialists, you know, and all that, all their writings have been read off the record. So that's why you don't find many African scholars who know that Nkrumah actually wrote against the extended family system. That he wrote against polygamy. That he actually said that all these, you know, family members who come to encroach on your salary and so on and so forth, they become docile lazy, and they bring everyone down with them. Nkrumah wrote that. But when you are reading African studies from African scholars, you don't ever get a sense of that. So what you get is what the anthropologists always said about simple societies, you know. So that's the reason why you don't have much focus on cities in Africa. Right, right. Urbanization is kind of... uh, and uh, something that you talk about as an aside is like, oh, well, this isn't really Africa. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even though many, most, I think the majority of the continent is going to be urban by 2050. Thank you very so. much. <laughs> and to think that African scholars, if, you, if I said that they are, we are playing catch up, I'll be generous. We are not even starting at all. Mm-hmm. So every time you read proposals for grants, you know, uh, papers that people are sending out to journals out here and all that, it is all, in fact, you routinely find African scholars who introduce themselves, oh, you know, in my village, and I said to them, I never lived in a village. I am the third generation of my family to have been born and bred in the big city of Ibadan. Hmm. You know, and I was also struck, uh, it seems that the hostility towards modernity is very selective uh, among a great number of African as well as uh, African studies scholars from other parts of the world. And in particular, I'm thinking, why no hostility to Marxism 
which is basically a theory of modern modernity. Uh, is it because there might not be a perceived taint, colonial taint to Marxism as an ideology? But certainly Marxism is a modernizing philosophy that seems to have been embraced by many intellectuals, uh, both in Africa and without. Uh, well, all you need to do is remind yourself of how backward African Marxism too was. And the most sophisticated African Marxists, one of them never even called himself one, and that would be Cabral for me. Uh, but when you think in terms of party line, you know, Marxist, Leninist, whatever it is, yes, it's as collectivist as they come. And it is not so much that they don't think of Marx as modern, it is that they think of Marxism as an anti-colonial instrument, so which is quite consistent with what I said. So when you try to, if I, you don't find, outside of Samir Amin, you don't find too many African Marxists who really see that Marxism is a modern philosophy. Right, okay. Outside of Samir Amin. Right, I was thinking of him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so again, that's part of the thing. Um, you really don't find the kind of sophisticated understanding of the history of Marxism and its intimate connection to the entire history of intellectual development in Western Europe, you know, um, from about the 15th century to the 20th. Let's, I would like to push on a bit about, uh, before we talk some more about some of the material in your later chapters. Yes. Um, could you just clarify again how you make a distinction and how you're going to convince uh, people who are not on the train yet yes. uh, a distinction between your definition of modernity and its, and its linkage with westernization? In particular, how can one still be or define oneself as an African and be modern according to your uh, prescription? Yes. Uh, the key is, and I hope I did a passable job of it in the book, is to separate modernity from westernization um, so that uh, you look at, let's say, Western Europe itself. I have argued that Spain did not really get on the road to modernity until after 1975 with Franco's passing. And that is how you understand, you begin to make sense of the gap between the modernity of Spain and the modernity of the Netherlands, to take one instance. Right. Uh, that is how you begin to understand the modernity of Italy that never really made that transition either, and the modernity of Germany. But if you now take modernity to be at the same time westernization, then you have to lie to yourself that there's no difference between Portugal and Sweden. Right. Well, that brings up the question uh, which you touch on as well, uh, the problem of the nationalist problematic, how how uh, African countries can maintain their individuality and still be modern, how there can be an, a Ghana and Kenya, same way that there can be a Sweden and a Portugal. Yeah. Uh, what that requires is another part that the negative reaction to modernity has completely blocked from development. Um, you take Belgium and you take Nigeria. Belgium, until recently, was very close to a breakup, was practically non-functioning 
because these two tribes could not agree on who should be prime minister. But nobody talks about tribalism being a problem in Belgium. And when people talk of Canada, they talk of federalism. But when they come to Nigeria, they talk of tribalism. And once people allow themselves to be goaded into what I call the nation-building problematic, which is built on the assumption that before colonialism, there were no nations in Africa. But if you go back to the 19th century and early 20th century, West African intellectuals were writing about how, in spite of the different ethnicities amongst them, they constituted a nation. So they knew, way before Benedict Anderson wrote the book, that nation, going back to the Hadarian, you know, this, the debate in the 19th century, was not a natural artifact, but a social, ideological, political construct. And, you know, uh, various West African leaders were trying to create, actually, a nation out of Ghana. They were trying to create a nation out of Sierra Leone. And that was what they were thinking of in Nigeria. So once you think of it that way, then you know that the challenge of Nigeria is how to come up with a supernatural, a super, a supranational identity to overlay the many national identities and other sub-identities that are within the country. And that is the challenge of 90% of all the countries on earth as we speak. Well, last night's debacle proves Thank that. Thank you very much. So <laughs> why then do you insist that in Africa, in order for them to have Nigeria, they have to completely abolish being Yoruba, being Hausa, being Fulani, Nobody makes that demand of people in Canada. Nobody makes the same demand of people in, you know, um, actually in the United Kingdom, as the Scottish example just recently showed. Mm-hmm. But I don't think anyone has ever talked of the political history of the United Kingdom in terms of nation building. So my point is, what do all those other countries have that African countries lack the modern idea of citizenship. And if our scholars had not been, you know, uh, uh, misled into the nation-building problematic and had been theorizing, theorizing citizenship, that is where the chapter on procedure will become very important. Right. I see In that. this country yeah. today, I am a naturalized American. I can celebrate July 4th any which way I want. I can move as I have moved repeatedly in this country. As I am now in New York, just one year old, I now have residency here. I can run for any office. Does that mean that I stop being Yoruba in America? Hell no. But does that mean that I cannot exclude somebody from my space just because they are not Yoruba as long as they are American? You bet. Right. <laughs> Um, well, that really leads me to, I mean, you're, I'm glad you mentioned citizenship because um, in your chapter on individualism, one of the things that really, really moved me and uh, engaged me to get the prefix EN in uh, was your, your description of human rights and the treatment that many African 
gay and lesbian people receive. So my question, uh, my question was raised, but how uh, individualism does not necessarily lead to tolerance. So how can modernity and the individualism you're arguing for be steered towards a more, more tolerant and open societies in Africa? And I, I assume that probably is leading to the later chapters, but yes. it, let, let's focus just on individualism and tolerance. Yes. Do you have any ideas about how to reconcile those aspects of, of the problem of modernity? Uh, the middle term for them both is human dignity and the sovereignty of the subject. So that as long as you recognize that each individual should be the author of her life and that you may remonstrate with them, you may appeal to them, you may even dislike the kind of selfhood they have come up with, but as long as you recognize their right to that and the dignity that attaches, as John Stuart Mill will call it, to living their lives from within, then there are certain things you will not do. And you may have done that for a long time, as has happened in this country, for instance. But all of a sudden, in 30 years' time, it's almost as if people now think the time people were passing all those laws, including 1994, you know, with the Marriage Amendment Act, is now like prehistory. But that's because you have a fundamental philosophical template where human dignity is not negotiable. And the same thing will apply not just to gays, it will apply to child brides. Because when you marry off an eight-year-old, you practically made it impossible for them ever to have a life that they have authored. And if that is your culture, I'm sorry, get rid of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Be on the train, you have to you have to jettison those kinds of approaches to That's life. Like, yeah. So really. For me, as I've always said to people, freedom is not a Western thing. It's not a cultural thing. It's a human thing. Respect does not have a byline. So whether it's in Afghanistan or it's in northern Nigeria, I take the same position. And if that means that I'm not African, I'm happy not to be. <laughs> I think this is where you kind of raise the hackles of, <laughs> of many people. But again, it seems unassailable and a real a clarion call to, to introspection, self-assessment and questioning these assumptions we all have about each other and our place in the world in ways that can only lead. Yes, it will lead to some discomfort. And I have to say there are parts of your book that made me uncomfortable, but in a, in a good way. Uh, it, they shook me. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, if you don't, as you said, if you don't want to be part of this conversation, it's your oh, choice. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but if, you want, if you want to read, you know you're going to be shaken and know you're going to be questioning a lot of things that you thought you knew, which leads me to, to I'd like to kind of, to um, talking about the Knowledge Society yes. and, the, and then the chapter and linking that with the chapter on count, measure and count. Yes. I just I just finished a book that um, was 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 uh, exploring what about the humanities is relevant, yeah. and one of the answers was humanities always always question what seems to be obvious to get 
to get what really is obscure about being obvious. And that really struck me that you weren't making an argument in, in the chapter on knowledge that knowledge for its own sake is, is an intrinsic yeah. good, but you don't know where it's going to lead. Yeah. And that's, that's how, it, to me, it segues into the count, measure, and count yes. uh, uh, chapter. So could you kind of uh, flesh out sort of the linkages that I'm making here and that you make in the yes. book between knowledge and then its use? Yes. Um, just think of the Ebola crisis going on right now. When people ask me, I said, it is at first a crisis of knowledge. It's not a crisis of resources. It's first a crisis of knowledge, then a crisis of governance, and then a crisis of resources. Now, if you don't know how many people have been in contact with somebody who just passed, because that's not the kind of thing you pay attention to. So how are you going to trace them in order to put them in quarantine? If you don't have a rational system of house numbering that will enable you to know who lives where at what time and where they left to go to and at what time, so how would you be able to trace all the secondary contacts for somebody who has already been infected? They have that problem in Sierra Leone right now. We were lucky in Nigeria that that problem did not get out of hand because the state government did a fantastic job and they practically got people on the road to the houses of the almost 1,000 people that were in any way connected to the index case. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. When my, my friends have looked at the, the three countries affected, and they say, isn't all Africa like this? And I said, well, the country with which I'm most familiar, Ghana, yeah. and, and Nigeria managed to yeah. educate and implement uh, policies so people weren't enveloped in, by fear and ignorance. So I think you know, that's a really good point. And a, little, a whole lot of that they were able to do with cell phones. Now, Which, yeah. when the telecommunication industry was deregulated in Nigeria by Obasanjo, I'm sure they were thinking more of the economic impact and so on and so forth. Who thought that that would become an instrument with which to trace possible carriers of a deadly virus to prevent an epidemic. So when you start thinking in terms of, oh, let's solve the problems we have now, whatever set of problems humanity has right now pales into insignificance compared to all the problems humanity doesn't know. So that's why you pay your intellectuals, your scientists and all that to even go along some blind alleys because finding out that those are blind alleys is itself instructive. So when you now talk in terms of counting and all that, and that's why I use the example, just take one small part of any African city. They cannot tell you what is the birth rate in that part. As I said in the book, as you and I speak, 
Nigeria does not know how many people inhabit its borders. So how do you know how many jobs you need to create to absorb all the new additions to your population after every census? Mm-hmm. How do you anticipate how many school spaces you will need for your 18-year-olds as they graduate from high school? But if you are not just storing those, you know, collecting those data for their own sake, because you don't know what you're going to have to use them for. So I talk about a country like this, and I make a joke about it. This is the ultimate counting societies. There are all kinds of crazy lists every day that you find. You know, um, you're talking about the United yes, States. I'm talking about the United yeah. States. There are all kinds of crazy right. lists. <laughs> it wasn't so long ago that, you know, um, they said you must drink, you know, eight, eight ounce cups of water a day. And then they said, oh, that would be too many, you know. <laughs> and everything that you do, think of the insurance companies and the new burgeoning area of insurance, dismemberment insurance. What does country have to do with that? So they put a quantity on your thumb. <laughs> they put a quantity on your forearm right? and it varies whether or not you are a baseball pitcher or you are a writer you know um, so what that means is that hey there is a, a number for every part of your body finger models don't wash plates they wear gloves all the time because that is their means of livelihood. So there are all kinds of ways in which counting, you know, comes in. But beyond all that, I always marvel. Uh, This morning, I went down to warm up some food in the microwave oven, and I was looking at the coffee maker, and I was looking at the funnel and the carafe. You cannot have any kind of misalignment between the hole at the bottom of the funnel and the hole on top of the carafe, through which the coffee is going to percolate into the carafe. Precision, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> we don't have that. So, you, you go to somebody and they say, oh, we have this medicine for you, then you ask, you know, as I said in the book, too much of a good thing can kill you. You've got to measure it. That's what I meant. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, I've often, when I was in, doing my research in Ghana, the, the, the question was always, you white people, you always think of these things. And I responded, you black people, you can think of these things too if you want Thank to. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I, I lived in South Korea as part of my sabbatical and part of ongoing research on late transitions to modernity. My bus from my apartment to the school, bus that goes in traffic on the street, dedicated lanes and all that, was almost to the minute every time. <laughs> Let's move on because I, I think we're 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 being really gen. You're really being generous, but I want to kind of see if we can keep within our agreed upon hour. No <laughs> uh, chapter five. Yes. Um, to me, is the key chapter in terms of the 
the, ten the tenets of modernity that you outlined, process, not outcome. Yes. Could you just kind of explain about that a okay. bit and how it relates to the things we've been talking yes. about? Um, when Africans first bought into modernity and they embraced process, the colonial authorities said that Africans were too backward for the technicalities of law. So they appointed what they called police magistrates. And there were police magistrates in Tanzania until 1974. So can you imagine the person who arrests you is also the person who is going to try you. The principle of modernity is principle of separation. And that metaphysics is carried over into power. And when they say that everybody is equal before the law, yes, we all know it's a formal equality. But that equality is an inconvenience to those who, when they used to rule by ascription, practically did whatever they liked and called it the law. So my point is that if we were all to commit to process, not outcome, Many of the things that people talk about in Africa, especially corruption, will be understood differently. I mean, look, um, this is a country of corruption. But you know that anytime the law catches up with you, you will pay. It does not matter who you are. Aaron, MCI, name it. You will pay. Madoff. In Africa, because the legal system has not been put in place to actually meet the original inspiration that led to it, because the colonial authorities always made it clear that power was their thing, not process. Generations of African leaders have bought into that. And many of us who even say we are progressives, when the court system is being totaled, we are usually quite indifferent until the thing catches up with us. Um, so if Nigeria had been a country of process, Tensaro Wewa would still be alive today. Right, right. And mm -hmm. that example alone is enough for me. I hope it's enough for for everyone. I mean, that's that again was uh, there's so many parts of the book that just kind of resonated like, uh-huh, really, 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 really. <laughs> Why? Why are no, people You know, it's not many of us who are Marxist and all that. It's like, you know, that's bourgeois <laughs> hocus pocus. <laughs> wow. The law is just an instrument in the hands of the rich. Yes, but the rich has to pay attention to the law. Right. And, and as you point out, uh, your book is is expressing the positive and you know you know that m there are many imperfections and flaws and pitfalls Absolutely. but but let's look at as a manifesto should be as you have expressed yourself in this manifesto let's look at the positive implications of what you're saying and um that brings me to the last chapter which to me um almost brought tears to my eyes it was so mo so moving and uh, in your book, it's peppered, uh, for readers should know, the book is peppered with lots of really uh, cool aphorisms and ideas. And, and one that struck me in your last chapter was, quote, quote, being modern means forswearing abjection. 
end quote. And if I may just share a brief anecdote. And this, um, one of my favorite cab drivers when I was doing my research in Ghana, oh, now I hate to say how many years ago. uh, (laughs) (laughs) I got in the cab and he had Alpha Blondie on the cassette player. Then he saw me and he whipped it out and put in Perry Como. And I, and I thought, you like this guy? And he goes, Perry Como, he's my main man. And I thought, what, uh, what American of a, of a teenage, uh, late teenage, early 20s would, would love Perry Como? Apologies to those who love him. But I just thought, this guy has no qualms about embracing someone that, you know, why are you listening to this guy? Why aren't you listening to Alpha Blondie as you should? So, I mean, my question is, what do you mean by forswearing abjection? And then I'd like you, if you would, touch upon uh, what uh, something that I thought, honestly, you might you kind of um, skirted in the book, and that is uh, the role of um, quote unquote ordinary Africans who seem much more willing to embrace modernity than the elites and intellectuals you're talking you're mainly talking to. Um, first, let me talk about the objection. Every time I see people on TV in newspapers, in Africa, and they say, oh, we beg government, my heart sinks. We appeal to government to look kindly at us, my heart sinks. Because that is not the stance of a citizen. In a modern state, the government is inferior to the citizen. In a modern state, the reason why you have the presumption of innocence is that people know that the people who run the government momentarily can always turn its enormous powers to the service of faction. So it is not the government that needs protection from the people. It is the people who need protection from the government. So it is the government that has to be restrained, not the people. So it is the government that has to answer to the people, not the people to the government. But because the notion of citizenship is underdeveloped in Africa, I published a paper several years ago called Of Citizens and Citizenship, and I argue that there are no citizens in Nigeria, there are only citizens of Nigeria. Because when you're a citizen, you don't beg your government. You demand of your government to deliver what it owes you as a citizen. That's what I mean by the objection. So that when a policeman stops you, your position is always, oh my God, I've done something. And then you start begging the policeman. Why do you beg the policeman? The policeman is supposed to be working for you not to be lording it over you. And there are so many other ways, you know, in fact, the continent now is now swimming with NGOs that are giving, you know, uh, powdered milk to infant children and celebrities in Africa now think that it's a fantastic thing that they have foundations that are giving arms to the unfortunate. That is the institutionalization of abjection. That's what I mean by that. Do I answer your question? That answers the question. And and how does that um, how does that tie into sort of the, the 
the cab driver yeah. example who who preferred Perry Como to African music and wasn't ashamed to admit um, that. This is one place where the resort to Marx is very important. Um, that the ruling ideas of every age are the ideas of the ruling classes. Um, ordinary people embrace modernity in their own lives without tension because it works for them. And they know, you know, I mean, look, um, uh, women who did not go to school, you know, and stuff like that, know to go to family planning clinics and get IUDs inserted in them without their husband's knowledge because they know that he will never say yes and they are tired of just making babies. And every time he will say to them, so why are you not getting pregnant? They always have an answer. It's not God's time yet. <laughs> right. Okay? So the greatest anxiety is about people like us. But the unfortunate part of that is that since we set the standards and we run the institutions, a good part of what we do then percolates to the lower society such that everybody gets caught up in that web. Now, if you were to have a society where you take this issue seriously, the dignity of the lowliest person very seriously, that cab driver will have more backbone to stand up for who he is and have you complain about the music before he will explain to you and then say, okay, I need to defer to you since you are my guest. Let me replace it with something else. But not to suck up to you by pretending that that's who he is. So, right. That, that's what really struck me about that encounter with the cab yeah. driver. He was being genuine. He wasn't trying to suck up to what he yeah. thought a, wh a white person or anyone else thought he should yeah. be. Um, so you, you, you have this absence of self all around the place. Look, there's a particular way that this has become very corrosive and widespread across Africa now. Um, in many areas, let's say Egypt or Iraq and all that, uh, when ordinary people see fossils, they probably call up the authorities before we went to mess up Iraq, you know, and say, you know, we got this here. In many places in Africa, they will just give them away or sell them to whoever it is because we are not giving knowledge, we are not educating people as to the importance of keeping that fossil exactly where it is in a way that might even redound to the economic advantage of the people who live in the area. Let's... um. Our hour is fast approaching its conclusion. I would like, if you would, to end with uh, talking some about the culture of hope. Yeah. And I think your book is really more than just about Africans embracing modernity, but it's a way for everyone to embrace it and work together. So what would you say is the message of your book for non-Africans and how can we... Uh, achieve some of the principles you've outlined in your manifesto? Yes. Um, before I answer that question, because you had also said something about the underside, the underbelly of modernity, which I didn't talk oh. about at all. Uh, right. Let me just okay. say one or two sentences about that. Um, welcome to modernity. <laughs> um, and the antidote to that is for people like me to not go along with those who think that modern society is the best that humanity is capable of. So, 
in spite of my defense of it, I still believe that a good society will not be a modern society. A modern society still falls short of what for me will be a good society. So the kind of community that Marxism, you know, in its proper uh, sense, was thinking of in terms of the society of the future is exactly the society that will preserve this individuality but with a robust sense of community that is not coerced and which will then take care of the alienation that is alienation is a defining part of modernity. You cannot have separation without having alienation. Right. I'm glad you pointed that out because I did mention, I should, I should explain to our listeners that Femi and I had an extensive series of communications about these very topics and modernity being a fragmenting and alienating force as well as an integrating one. So, um, and if you look at all the best, you know, attempts, yeah, you take communitarianism in this country, there are attempts to sort of bring back together what modernity, modernity had torn asunder. And a good part of Western political philosophy is dedicated to that. We've seen it either in feminism or, you know, uh, queer studies and so on. It's trying to bring back, and a whole lot of the communitarian debate is about that. So, but if people think that they are going to have modernity without the alienation, uh, the Chinese Communist Party is kidding itself that way right now. But anybody who is following Chinese sociology knows that that is not what is going on. And we have seen it happen in Japan. It happened very late, but it is happening in Japan. And uh, uh, South Korea, unfortunately, has the highest rate of suicide among young people in the world right now. There's a reason for that. It's not some Asian miracle. (laughs) Um, So there's hell to pay. That's the point. And I don't want to make light of that. Um, But as I said, in a manifesto, you don't talk about your underbelly. (laughs) You talk about your best foot forward. Um, The culture of hope for me is that, and I see that quite often, you know, um, here, until the recent really terrible economic crisis and so on and so forth, there's always an almost unreasoning enthusiasm about the future. However things are now, are right now, yes, they are going, we're just about to turn the corner. We're just about to turn, just one more election, you know, just one more technological invention, just one more. It is that sense that the future is always open, that we can always get from where we are now to a better place, you know, out there in the future. That is not part of the orientation in Africa right now. And because that is not the case, all the things that we could be doing that could inform that, we don't have them. On the contrary, as I said in the book, we have the mentality of this is Africa, that cannot be done here. Whereas, if we have this robust sense of self that I've been talking about, that is infused with an almost impossible optimism, then numbers will no longer be a threat to us. They will be a challenge to meet. We will not look at our cities 
as just widespread slums, we will look at the waterways that pass through our cities as possibilities of recreation, which is what happens in other countries. But in Africa, the waterways are for dumping waste. And when you talk to your colleagues that, you know, we could turn this into a recreation facility, they say, ah, there you go again. This is Africa. <laughs> it is that sense of resignation, that sense that being at the bottom of the pile is where we ought to be, that is what the culture of hope will completely eliminate. And when we start thinking, not in terms of going to share other people's fortunes, but of having them come to share ours and feeling at home, as human beings do, wherever they go to, that for me is when Africa will be fully part of the world, which it is now right now. So, and so that I assume I assume that would be your message of the book for non-Africans as well. Um, uh, yes, because uh, it will require people to stop looking at Africa as uh, the problem child of the world. It will require people who live here not to take their luck for granted and ignoring, as I said in the introduction to the book. The, introduction for North America, ignoring all the despotic inroads that are now being made into modernity around here, especially in the areas of law and in the areas of hope. Because now you have a clear one or two generations of Americans whose lives are destined not to be as good as those of their parents. And I don't see my colleagues in the universities being properly anxious about that when we teach young people. I am, I am anxious. I talk about it all the time. And I tell my, my, my students, this is your future. You better get off your touches and do something about it. Well, gee, that, that seems to me to be the best possible way to end this really informative hour. Uh, I really thank you, Femi, for uh, taking the time to talk wonderfully about your book, uh, for listeners, we've been talking with Professor Olafemi Taiwo, uh, whose book, Africa Must Be Modern, A Manifesto, has been published in the United States by Indiana, Indiana University Press. It's a wonderful, engaging read. I encourage you all to get it and pick it up and read it. You will learn a lot about Africa, but you will learn even more about yourself. Thank you, Femi, thank you so much. So much. Jim. It's really nice talking with you. And thank you for taking the time to read the book. And I really do appreciate your very kind words about it. Thank you much. Thank you.